Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Arnie and Jim, if you could, I want you, if you could, record the first few paragraphs of the message tonight, even though it's an announcement. So I want everybody to, thank you, everybody to get this message, whether on DVD or MP3 or online. I guess I could do this right out of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.1 is one of the key exhortations in this great sermon and epistle. Let brotherly love continue. And I can say that for this congregation because it does, it has been the habit of all of you and we just want it to continue. Let brotherly love continue in, and this is sad because we have an affectionate congregation, social distancing, it's called. And that has become quite important. Um, as you know, we are now, they've called it what, the, what it is, is a pandemic, this coronavirus. We are not, I'm not, and neither should any one of us be afraid or show an, or have any fear about anything like this, any social trend. But it will be a national and international stress test for many. And the awareness that I want to demonstrate here as a pastor and a shepherd is something that I think is very important. That is, if you are in any way exhibiting any kind of symptoms, even if it seems like a mild cold, better off staying home. And not just you, but everybody is because uh, of the way this thing travels. Secondly, you may, and many of you are very strong, especially the young among us, you know, they're strong and immortal and all the rest of it. But the there are those among us or those to whom we can carry the things that are going around who are extremely vulnerable. And I mean, life and death vulnerable to things like this. To them, it would be a life threatening disease. The coronavirus it's called, it's got a name now, but we have the name above all names. So we're trusting in him. And again, that's the main thing. Let brotherly love continue by an awareness. This is the time when we're not concerned with the things of ourselves, but with things of others. Philippians 2, 1 to 2. It's a great demonstration of that. And also stay tuned because there are now mandates going out about attending public events. There are some places where you can't attend public events. Colleges are shutting down. Whether it's a reaction or overreaction is not up to me to judge. But the mandate may come down regionally and otherwise for the prohibition to gather together. And that may be the case for us someday down the road. But if it is, we have contingency plans, and I hope you'll stay tuned for them by text. If you haven't gotten given your number yet to Kathy at the information table or just dropping it at the information table, to be texted either for cancellations or for information about perhaps whether I teach with no one present and it still goes online and into DVDs or whatever, that still may be the case. I, can, I will continue to study and teach. And, but be aware. So through text, also stay tuned online as much as you can if you have the website, uh, tetelestai.org. And you can tune into that. Maybe we'll have sliders up there. Jeremy will probably be able to provide us with information. Because there will be contingencies. There will be changes. And I just want you to be aware of them. But again, until then, there is a time for embracing, as Ecclesiastes says, and a time to refrain from embracing. I know how very difficult that is for some of you who love to just embrace. And the uh, so... Social distance is the way they're, the, the term they're using. We, we also want to show our love by our confidence in the Lord, in the name above all names, as we're going to see, and if, right in Hebrews 1.4, in fact, and that you can give any person or angel or disease a name, but there's a name above all names, and we have total confidence in him. And so we want to 
pray before we get started. And Father, we thank you for another opportunity to trust in you and to trust your name and to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our faithful and merciful high priest who is tested in every way as we we are and yet without sin. I pray that you will grant to Telestai Phalanx, all of us in all of our meeting places, grant us the gift of confidence and trust in your son, and may that be contagious. May our confidence in your plan be contagious. May our hope in a universal reconciliation be infectious. And may we bear your testimony in the testimony of Jesus Christ. May we remain faithful whether in times of testing and trial or in times of blessing and prosperity, which are also certain to come to us corporately and individually and family-wise. We ask your blessing upon Tetelestai, Tetelestai, all of our families, all of our associates and friends, this nation, our leadership, and the nations of the world even now. And we pray that this will be an opportunity for the gospel to shine forth. Well, Father, they've called it by name. They've called it a coronavirus or COVID-19, but we call your son by name. His name is Jesus. And we look to you, Father, to stop the progress, to limit the progress of this particular illness and disease, to limit its damage, and to keep it within the realm of a divinely permitted test, but only that. And Father, we thank you that you have allowed us this opportunity for such a time as this. It seems that your finger has pointed to Hebrews, to the sermon within it, to the comfort within it, to the hope within it. And may we be a people who grasp the hope, who live by faith, which is, conviction of things hoped for, the the evidence of things not seen, the very substance of the future world already with us. And Father, most of all, come what may, may we see Jesus. We ask that you'll bless the going forth of your word tonight in a remarkable way that it will have not only an immediate impact, but a long-lasting effect, not only in these immediate hearers, but in hearers that hear this message in times down the road. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The name of the title tonight is the Greek phrase, Pharaon te tapanta. Pharaon te tapanta. P-H-E-R-O-N. Pharaon te, which simply means and. It's a small particle. Ta Panta, I think that may be a little familiar, that phrase to you, or that articular noun, ta panta. So really, all you got to do is kind of figure out what pharaoh means, and I'll give that away as we go. Hebrews 1, and this, every time we're giving it a little tweak until we get to a fairly, hopefully fairly accurate and expanded translation of what this is, the exordium, the first four verses, uh, is a complex sentence In the Greek, and it's made up of clauses, not just phrases, but clauses. And a clause has a subject and a predicate, and it's within a complex sentence. So the sentence goes from 1-1 all the way through 1-4. And it's remarkable, this complex sentence, because in one way, everything is in there. It's all in there. The entire epistle and all the main points and all of the main motifs really are fanned out from here all the way through to the end of Hebrews. So Hebrews 1.1, in many parts and in various ways long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets in these last days, has spoken definitively to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of All things through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible 
self-representation of his invisible reality, the stamp of his substance, who upholds the universe. Notice this. This is an expanded phrase. Who upholds the universe, that's the sun, and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. Please note that that's an expanded translation to capture the sense. Who has made purification for sins. There's a huge, enormous theme. Who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become, the sentence goes on, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You have to ask the question, how can the eternal son become better than the angels? And how can he inherit a name that's so much better than theirs? How does this happen? And the answer to this involves what to me has been the greatest stunning insight that I've received since receiving the USSJC insight. So that's coming down the road, but I'll give some hints to that tonight. In addition to two nouns that are descriptive of the sun in relation to God, one, the radiance, that's the first noun, the radiance, or one translation says the outshining, the shining out, of his glory. And the second noun being the stamp or the self representation of his substance of God's substance. Following those two nouns that are descriptive of the son in relation to God, the father, that is, there are then three verbs of action, three verbs of action, which are attributed directly to the son. The son, in other words, performing the action of these verbs. The son upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, another translation for the word of his power would be by his powerful word. When you have two nouns juxtaposed like that, sometimes it's adjectival where the power would recommend a, an adjective. So by his powerful word... And I would even say, by his powerful word of command, he upholds all things. Tabhanta. So you're getting the idea. Maybe pharaoh or pharaoh, the verb, means to uphold. Partly, maybe that means that. The son upholds all things by the word of his power. And I translated, as you've seen, and as I emphasized, and expanded the clause... Pharaon te tapanta, then to remate, which is from the word remates, duna meos, autu. You'll see all this in print. And incidentally, number 10, we have all the way through number 10 on the information table. Number increment 10 is already in print. So I translated and expanded that clause, Pharaon te tapanta, to remati tes dunamios autu as, quote, to capture the sense, that is, to, this is what captures the sense. I would say, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. That's the sense, and I'm supposed to do that. In Nehemiah 8.8, as all pastor theologians and pastor exegetes are supposed to do, give the sense. And that demands sometimes an elaboration or expanded translation. So the succinct translation, though, if we want to go back to, and this is also instructive, if we want to just make the translation succinct and not elaborated, it simply says, he, meaning the son, carries all things by the word of his power. That word carries captures the sense of Pharaoh. And I'm going to try to capture that sense a little more clearly and a little more 
precisely for you. In this opening complex sentence consisting of several clauses, we are struck, and you're especially struck if you read it in the Greek text, by the words pantone, which describes the range of the inheritance of the son. What is he going to inherit? Pantone, P-A-N-T-O-N, everything. That includes all things, all beings, all things that have being in what is known as the universe of proportionate being. The universe of proportionate being is everything except God. And they are proportionate. For example, angels compared to men and humanity, compared to animals, compared to mineral, compared to atomic, compared to subatomic in quantum reality, etc. You have a proportionate being. God is all out of proportion to created being. He is essentially divine and in every way all out of proportion, even as his grace is all out of proportion to our worthiness, thankfully. So in this opening complex sentences, especially in the Greek, we're struck by the word pantone, and that describes the range of the inheritance of the sun, or we can call it the horizon of the inheritance of the sun. God has appointed him to inherit pantone, everything. That includes all the nations, as as Psalm 2 says. I will give you the nations, for example, for your inheritance, he says to his son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And how does that work? How does that work? Today I have begotten you, the eternal son. How does he say that to him? Psalm 2.7. These are the Psalms that speak and testify of me, Jesus said in Luke 24, 26, 27, and 44. So Psalm 2.7, the Hebrew pastor theologian picks up on this. And he knows Psalm 2-7 is all about Jesus. He knows Psalm 110-1 is all about Jesus. My Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, my son, until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Feet that were so damaged in your crucifixion. Feet that still retain scars. Son, here's a footrest for you. After that unspeakable ordeal, all your enemies. How's that for an Ottoman? Even the Ottoman Empire under your feet. And that's such a tender scene because we think of it as this big official thing going on, but the father tenderly places a footrest under his son's feet that were driven through with a spike. As he was nailed to a tree by men. So the tenderness and the omnipotence behold the gentleness and the omnipotence of God. And he can't wait to give you something that compensates infinitely for all the tears you've cried. And the trials you've endured. So. Pantone. Describes the range. Or the horizon of the inheritance of the sun. And then we're also struck. Almost back to back with tapanta. Right down the road. Tapanta. Which is another way of saying everything. But describes the scope and horizon. Of that which the sun upholds. And carries forward. This word pharaoh is very versatile. Because it not only kind of pictures an atlas. Who has the government of everything on his shoulders. And carries all the burdens of the universe on his shoulders. But it also has the idea of carrying all these things forward. Of guiding them forward to some conclusion. And we're going to see that that conclusion is entirely fitting with God's infinite philanthropy and unrestricted beneficent love, agape love. 
And we might even pull some old treasures out of the treasure chest all the way back from ancient history and DLT. So Tapanta describes the scope and the horizon of that which the sun upholds, even as the universe describes the horizon of what God made by him. There's an an amazing and remarkable universality in this opening barrage, this opening sentence, an amazingly remarkable universality connected with the sun. And we shouldn't miss this because the exhortations in here are rough and the, the riot act is read here to people. And well, it should be. And we need this right now. We need Hebrews right now. We need Hebrews right now. Not just us. All the Christians in the world need it right now. Now, in Colossians 1.17, and I don't care who you are, you can't resist this if you're an exegete of the scriptures. When you're reading Hebrews 1.3, you can't resist going to Colossians 1.17. Or if you're exegeting Colossians 1.17, you can't resist going to Hebrews 1.3 because as the entirety of the universe is seen to be the sun's purview, Colossians 1.17 can be compared with 1.3. The comparison is one of both similarity and dissimilarity, though. Similarly, the entirety of the universe is seen to be the sun's purview. But in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is said to be actively upholding and carrying the all things. The all things. The article makes that everything without exception. The all things considered as a single reality. Nothing escapes the all things. Not a sparrow. Not a raven. Not a person. Not a breadcrumb. Not a blade of grass. From 1852. Nothing. Escapes the son's loving care. In Colossians 1.17, the scripture says that the all things cohere in him, or by him, we could say. The verb in Colossians 1.17 is not Pharaoh, and that's how it appears. It's just with the O in the vocabulary form. It's, instead of that, it's S-U-N, don't confuse this, this is Colossians 1.17, S-U-N-I-S-T-E-M-I, sunistemi. Now here, the sun isn't performing the action of this verb. The universe is, all things are, cohering. They're cohering because of the sun, though. I still object to people calling God the universe. Don't call God the universe when I'm around. Keep a social distance from me. If you're going to use, and don't tell me that God is so active in the universe that it's okay to call him the universe. God made the universe. God sustains the universe. The universe is other than God. Don't call God the universe. No matter how fashionable it is, I don't buy it. Not to me. You can call him the universe in your little coffee clutches where you like to quote everything but the Bible and call yourself universalist Christians. But I ain't coming to your coffee clutch unless it's to disrupt it. You've seen money tables flipped over. Wait until you see a coffee table flipped over with hot coffee all over everybody. Now, don't judge me by this one thing. I just don't like calling God the universe. I just put it out to the universe today that he would, God would, that universe would give me a raise. Well, hell, I hope the universe gives you a raise right out of your bed and you plop on the floor. Now, so, that's all metaphorically speaking. Colossians 1.17, in fact, says this. 
It's, it's within one of the most remarkable hymns of the scripture, H-Y-M-N-S. Colossians 1.15 to 120. There's another remarkable hymn from Philippians 2.6 through 2.11. These are hymns. They contain the essence of the Christian message. They are Christological hymns. They center in Jesus Christ. And they center in his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. They are all about Christ and him crucified. Colossians 1.17 is in the heart of a poem or a hymn. It goes all the way through to verse 20. Colossians says that the all things cohere in or by him. And the verb sunistami is performed by the all things. The all things or the universe of proportionate being holds together in him. In fact, the whole verse says this. In the context of the son of God's love, securing peace by the blood of the cross, Colossians 1.17 says, He, that is Christ, the image of God, exists before everything. He exists before everything. In the beginning was the word. He was always the word. He always existed before all things. Nothing came into existence except by him, says John 1.1-3. 1, 1 so Colossians 1.17 again says, He exists before everything, and all things by him hold together. You see why I'm intrigued by 1.3 of Hebrews with Colossians 1.17. He upholds and carries all things by the word of his power, and all things are cohering or cohere or hold together by him and in him. There's a remarkable affinity there. And that's why it's irresistible. You can't, I can't stay away from 117. But there's also the law of similarity and dissimilarity in comparing these two. The verb sunistemi is performed by the all things. The all things hold together in him. So this reveals that the entirety of the universe in all of its array of beings coheres systemically by the agency of God's son, the son of God. You can't speak like a gobbling goblin, a godless gobbling goblin of climate change being an existential threat to the human race. If you believe one in God, and two, in his son, by whom all things cohere, and who upholds and carries all things. So don't listen to the gobbling of the godless about the existential threat of especially human-caused climate change. This is something that grabs people and brings them under the powerful demagoguery of political dictators of the communist type especially, but of the fascist type also, and we've had enough of them in history. So, let me calm down. I'm calm, I'm just kidding. The all things hold together in him. The entirety of the universe, in all of its array of beings, including invisible beings and heavenly beings, coheres systemically by the agency of God's Son, who is also called the Son of God's love. Colossians 1.13. Universal systemic cohesion, that's my phrase, is the effect of the Son. Systemic means total. The universe as a system coheres together by the Son. If it didn't, you'd know it for about a second because you wouldn't exist in less than a second. So, even things that are allowed to enter, which we call negative things, into the systemic cohesion of the universe are permitted by loving providence and have a philanthropic purpose, a beneficent purpose, ultimately. All things working together for 
you know, the good, agathos, agathosune. So then, universal systemic cohesion is the effect of the sun. S-O-N. Dissimilarly, in Hebrews 1.3, the verb pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, the verb pharaoh is performed by the sun. That's an action performed by the sun, whom God appointed heir of all things and by whom God made the universe. So pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, has the sense not only of to uphold so that we picture the sun, and it's not wrong really to do this, as a kind of atlas bearing all things upon his shoulders. It also has the sense of carrying or even of bringing, carrying or bringing. So we have the sense of the sun not only upholding all the universe of proportionate being, but he's carrying it or bringing it. You'd have to ask the question, to whom is he bringing it? Who's he bringing it to? Is he, is he bringing it like an offering to somebody? Hint, hint. Forms of the verb pharaoh. P-H-E-R-O. This is what you can get out of a word study. One, not, you, you know, if we go through Hebrews word by word, we may be done when I'm about 90. But we'll be done when Harvey gets out of jail or whatever. But the forms of the verb pharaoh are used in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is used exclusively or forms of it in Hebrews. For example... It's used for Cain and Abel who are said to bring offerings to the Lord. The picture is Cain brings Pharaoh an offering to God. He brings it from, the, from his garden, from his agricultural plantings. Abel also brings an offering to God, this time from the flock. And his is accepted, as you know, and the acceptance of his offering is probably shown by consumed, it's consumed by fire while Cain's isn't. So that's pretty dramatic. So Cain's is rejected. But the point is, Pharaoh is used for Cain and Abel bringing offerings of the Lord to the Lord. Genesis 4.3. Genesis 4.4. You can look these up yourself. It's used in Genesis 27.4 when Isaac who's at that time unable to see, and he mistakes Jacob for Esau, as you know. Isaac tells Esau, bring me a meal. Bring me some venison from your latest hunt. Go hunting. You know I love the way you cook venison. So bring me a meal made up of game that you take while hunting, Esau. The word is bring. You picture Esau killing a deer, you kill, he butchers the deer, he guts the deer, he carves the deer up, he brings his father a venison stew, he brings it to him. You see, it's, a, it's an offering in a way. It's used in Exodus 32.2 when Aaron commanded that the men of Israel bring to him the golden earrings of their wives and their sons and their daughters. Because he wanted to make a golden calf while Moses was away. That wasn't good. So, but the point is, you can picture the men of Israel asking their wives for their earrings and their daughters for their earrings and happily asking their sons for their earrings. All right, son, give me that earring. I've been wanting to do this for years. And they bring all, they bring them. Aaron and he puts them in a big cauldron and every time I think of the word cauldron I think of a TV show in the morning with women around a table and I have to go to the sometimes we go to the doctors and they always have that stinking show on cacklers cackling women and the poor guest gets butchered and I said I said to Pam one time I would never go on that show because that table reminds me of a cauldron and I don't want to be, when they're cutting carrots, 
and little pieces of vegetables, and I think I'm going to be next, I don't want to go on that show. But it's always on. We've got to change our appointments to another time. But so he puts all these things in a big cauldron. He boils this, and he makes out of that a wonderful form of a calf, which brings the whole country into idolatry. So in fact, but this is even more intriguing to me. The forms of this verb, pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, are used over and over again in Leviticus to depict the action of priests bringing, carrying or bringing offerings to the Lord. Lambs, rams, bullocks, doves, pigeons. Over and over again in Leviticus. For example, and you can find your own examples, but Leviticus 2.2, Leviticus 4.28, twice it's used in Leviticus 4.28. and and on and on it goes. Pharaoh. Not only that, but this word Pharaoh is also used elsewhere in Hebrews. In Hebrews 6.1, Pharaoh is deployed in the phrase, let us go on to, or let us be, literally, let us be brought to completion. That means to be brought to maturity as perfected worshipers. Worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. We are perfected as worshipers in Hebrews 10.1. That can't happen through the offerings of the Levitical age. It happens when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In Hebrews 9.16, it refers to evidence of a death being brought. Recently, my sisters and I had to, they send you a letter because mom has an insurance policy we didn't know about. And so you have to bring evidence of, a, of her death or her death certificate I like to call it evidence of her departure into the arms of Jesus to them. And so they know that you're legit. And so in Hebrews 9.16, it talks about bringing, bringing the evidence to the court or to the magistrate of the death of someone who wrote a last will and testament. And for the first time, the word diatheke for covenant is also used for last will and testament in Hebrews 9.16. And so it's used in a versatile way. So, but the point is, you bring evidence of a death to a court to prove the death of the maker of a last will and testament. In 1220 of Hebrews, it's used in the negative sense in speaking about the inability of the people of Israel to bear what was being heard from Mount Sinai. where angels were involved with the giving of the law. They were unable to bear Pharaoh what was being commanded. So there it doesn't have so much the word to bring as to carry. I can't bear this. Finally, in Hebrews 13, 13, it's used for bearing the reproach of Christ outside the camp. Bearing and bringing are both important nuances of the verb pharaoh, therefore, P-H-E-R, omega-O, omega-O, pharaoh. Not the king of Egypt, but a verb. Now, gear two. There's many ways in the book of Hebrews that the writer signals a change of subject or a, an advance of the subject. And that's how you structure uh, an epistle or a letter. He signals somehow, usually not by a paragraph division, or by a, but, but sometimes by a word. I, I do it by saying, here's second gear. Because of all this, or we could even say third gear by now, we're now in a position to consider that the sun is bringing the universe as an offering All things, bringing the universe, all things, and everything that ever happens in it, to his Father as an acceptable offering. 
Why not? Can we think this? <laughs> My study has been lately daring to think the formerly unthinkable. And then we test it. It might just be an insight that will rock you back on your heels. It might be God doing a deadlift, lifting us out of the dead, lifting us up. This chimes here with the idea that after the sun, and that's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Four calls him the sun on purpose, just like Hebrews one calls him the sun on purpose. And Colossians one thirteen calls him the son of God's love on purpose. This idea, Hebrews one three, the sun bringing the whole universe to the father as an offering. Which is acceptable to him, it chimes with the idea that after he will have reigned until all things, including his enemies, are brought under his feet by the Father, what does the Son do then? The Son hands over the kingdom to the Father. What's the kingdom? Everything that he reigned over. What's everything that he reigned over? Everything. Then comes the end, totelos, Paul says, the culmination. This is the end to which the son has been bringing everything. He hands over the kingdom to the father. What an interchange. The father brings all his enemies under his nail-scarred feet. The son brings all the kingdom over which he is reigning even now to the father and hands it over because he brings it to him and hands it to the father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, if you want documentation, if you want me to rock you with the docu. And when the Son also is, says in 15, 28, when the Son will also be subject to the Father who subjected everything to him. And the final result of that is, you might have heard me say this once or twice in the near future, or the near past and in the near future also. Final result of that is that God may be all in all. Now, this is what happens in what Paul calls the end. Then comes the end. T-O-T-E-L-O-S. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Totelos. Jesus said, I am the beginning and Totelos. Everything that happens in the totelos happens in the sun. This happens in the end, or what we call the culmination. So watch what I'm doing here. I hope you see it. We are therefore safe in saying that the sun in Hebrews 1 2 is not only bearing all things and all beings, but he's bringing all things and all beings to a culmination in which they will be in God and God in them. This is what I call a redemptive culmination or conclusion. What have I done here? What have I done? Well, I've defended my expanded translation that the son whom God appointed to be heir of all things and by whom God made all things now upholds all things, the universe, and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective. Now, though this is a much bigger truth than the doctrine of meticulous providence, as it's called, it nevertheless reveals that there is nothing, whether big or small, and that there is no event or happening, whether of enormous historical, geological, or astronomical significance, or on the seeming infinitesimal subatomic level, 
where disease begins, for example, that is out of the control of the Son of God's love. Nothing is out of the control of the Son of God's love. And that will not be carried along to a redemptive culmination by him. I like to hear a politician say that. Existential, schmexistential threat. Think about this. And I, you should. Think, I do. I think about this in the light of all the gobbling of godless voices who speak of climate change as an existential threat to humanity. And they make that the main point of their political program. Because if you interviewed most of these people in private, they would say they believe in scientists, but they do not believe in God. And that they think that that's an infantile thing to do. And that's what they really believe in their heart of hearts. And they can't wait to rule and lead you, the gullible, infantile, unwashed masses. Now, that's as political as I'm going to get all political season. That's it right there. But that's not political. That's theological. In any case, let's just go back. The theology, the exordium to Hebrews discloses that all things and all beings fall into a category, not only of creation and of the son's inheritance, but they also fall into a category of universal soteriology or salvation. Now, the apocryphal book of Baruch Apocryphal books are books that sometimes Catholic Bibles include. They're very useful. I don't think we can call them canonical or inspired, but they're very useful because they give us a very strong idea of how words were used. One of them is Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H. I happen to look at this because the Revised Standard Bible has all these books. And again, they're useful in determining usage of words, how they were used at the time. Baruch, in 437, and we always distinguish these from the canonical, but Baruch 437 says, quote, Behold, your sons are coming, whom you sent away. He's speaking to God. They are coming, gathered from east and west, at the word of the Holy One. And that's the same word that's used in Hebrews one, three, to, T-O, remati, R-E-M-A-T-I. We get that word, well, we see it usually as rema or remati, the word. <clears throat> so it says, again, behold, your sons are coming, whom you sent away. That is from Jerusalem. They are coming, gathered from east and west, at the word of the Holy One. The Holy One being the Messiah, Christ. To Romati, rejoicing in the glory of God. Even though that's not canonical, it's pretty good. This is not too far off from Psalm 33.6 or the Septuagint of 32.6 of Psalm 33. Or Psalm 33.6, 32.6LXX. Where to logo is used instead of to romati remati but that's it's kind of like a synonym to logo or logos elogio to logo that's used in psalm 33:6 or 32:6 in the lxx and that instead of to remati to logo is used as a synonym of to remati so it says in psalm 33:6 by the word of the lord to logo to re, to curio the word of the Lord, the heavens were established, and by the breath of his mouth, all their starry host. Trillions of galaxies by the breath of his mouth. So one gets a sense, and this is what I'm after here. 
one gets a sense of the word to remati by Baruch 437, which uses remati, but in comparison with Psalm 33, 6, which uses to logo very similarly. So sometimes lagos and rema are almost the same. Sometimes they're distinguished as rema is spoken word, etc. But here they're pretty much alike. In other words, the gathering of the sons of Jerusalem is brought about in response to the word of the Holy One, which is the Holy One's command. It's kind of like he's saying, come back home, and they obey the command. When he says to the universe, when he says to trillions of galaxies, stay up there, (laughs) they stay up there. When he tells certain planets to circulate and certain things to remain static and others to remain dynamic and to be systematically coherent, he does it by the word of his power. He says the word, everything's created. He says the word, everything is held up and carried along, upheld. Somewhere along the line, he said to me, Rick, live for so many years. And I'm obeying the word of his power. And I don't know what that, I'd like to know someday, how many years is that going to be? But he doesn't let us know that. That's part of the mystery of life and the spice of life. We don't know. You say, but one time a doctor told me I was only going to live for six more months. Yeah, and that was 10 years ago, wasn't it? So they don't know. So. I've had people tell me that I'm not going to live throughout the day, but I am still made it, you know. They, I don't know where they are. But the gathering of the sons of Jerusalem is brought about in response to the word, which is the Holy One's command. The idea of command is here. Both the logos of the Lord, by which the heavens were established, and the ramatos of the Son, by which all things, tapanta, are carried, exhibit a power that can only be omnipotent, and therefore divine. So we may be reminded of Jesus' words following his death and resurrection. Matthew 28, 18. By the word of his command, he says, meet me in Galilee. His disciples come. What's he say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, we thought you already had it by your eternal existence. Yeah, but there's another way by which he earned it. Through suffering. That's what's coming up. I just gave you a hint of the best and biggest insight in Hebrews, which is coming forth. With all authority, he is certainly able to carry all things and move them toward a conclusion that concurs with the beneficent and philanthropic purpose of God. That the Son carries forward everything that happens throughout all of the course of time means that nothing that ever happened since the beginning of time and the moment of initial creation is left out. Nothing is left out, including the entrance of sin into the world and death, which is its pandemic result. He carries everything. By enduring death, he carries everything to a redemptive conclusion. So the use of the phrase, the ages for the universe in Hebrews 1, 2, deliberately considers not just the spatial, but also the temporal aspects of the universe and thus contemplates not only the seeming infinite spatial reach or stretch of the universe. Now I'm writing some somewhat scientific stuff here in theological cosmology, so I'm going to be careful to read it because this is new territory for me. The use of the phrase, the ages, tus eonos, for the universe, in Hebrews 1-2, deliberately considers not just the spatial, but also the temporal aspects of the universe, and thus contemplates not only the seeming infinite spatial stretch of the universe, but the seemingly endless eons of its existence, in all the eras of that which we call history, carrying it over everything. The redemption wrought by the blood of God's Son is not only spatially universal in its effect, 
It's also diachronic and extends through time both back to the beginning and forward to the new creation of all things. Now, the epicenter for the new creation of all things is the weakest thing of all. It's a crucified man hanging on a bloody tree. Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Christ who was crucified in the state of the weakest weakness now lives by the omnipotent power of God and with the power of an indestructible life, Hebrews 7.16, he lives to make intercession for us while he also multitasks and carries everything. (laughs) Everything in the universe forward to a conclusion that is to the satisfaction of infinite wisdom and the delight of unrestricted love and divine philanthropy. So near the end of the epistle to the Romans, Paul compared himself to a priest with the Gentiles as his offering to God, acceptable because sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So in Romans fifteen fifteen to 16, he wrote, nevertheless, I've written to you quite audaciously on some points by way of a reminder through the grace that was given to me to be a minister accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles to perform the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of God, my purpose being that the offering of the Gentiles, which he's bringing to God, be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus, our great high priest, and his offering to the Father will be everybody and everything in all time throughout the whole of the universe. So... Please listen to gear four. In fact, I might even be in a fifth gear here in closing. With this, we can pull out of the treasure chest something old. Something from DLT, Doing in Living Theology. This beneficent and philanthropic purpose of God toward which Jesus is carrying everything and every being and every person and everything is none other than the external term of the divine missions or the divine objective of God for the universe of proportionate being, why he made everything in the first place. The divine missions, of which there are two. The first being the mission of the Son, in which at the juncture of the ages he offers himself for the putting away of sin, Hebrews 9.26, And for his receiving from the Father authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him, John 17, 2. The second mission being that of the Spirit who is to be poured out on all flesh, Joel 2, 28, evoking faith in all humans in 2 Corinthians 4, 13 and Ephesians 4, 13. This external term is the beneficent and philanthropic objective and the proposed intended culmination of the two divine missions, which are the two divine processions, which are the three divine persons, which are the four divine relations, which is the one triune God that ends with God in all and all in God. This is also the essence of the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things ta-panta in Christ, the Son, who, having suffered and died, was buried and raised and then elevated above the heavens and given a name above all names. Next clause, next time, maybe. All of this may be summed up under the phrase, so great salvation in Hebrews 2.3. Something that would be neglected to our own great disadvantage. Hence the advantage of not neglecting so great salvation by the teaching of Hebrews at this time in history. And listening to what the Spirit is saying to the churches right now. Thank you, Father, 
for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of freedom. And by gazing, we are free to be transformed into the likeness of the one we behold. For we behold and we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. But we also see him as the son carrying all things through all of time toward that external term that you intended from the beginning. Grant us, Father, to see these things. Grant us this insight. And may this insight insight regulate our thinking. May we be called daily back to this truth rather than distracted by the events and the happenings of this time in history, which indeed is a unusual time and a remarkable time. And really, it's an opportune time for the church, the body of Christ, and for each Christian to come to know him in such a remarkable way. May we see these times as that kind of time, that kind of opportunity. And Father, do not allow us, please, to join the already teeming herd of drifters in this world. But by the word, may we be among those wandering people of God headed toward the city, the builder and maker of whom is God, guided by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire at night. We ask these things and we present to you. We 